0: My name's Kevin Graham and welcome to Scream a Celica, the show that talks about football, music and culture and speaks to some really, really cool, creative people. And today's no different. Today I'm joined by Kevin Miles. Kevin Miles was the front man and singer of cult Scottish metalcore band, Yashin. And he's also the author and writer of a true Celtic classic song called Celtic, My Heart, My Soul. Kevin, welcome to Scream of Selica. How are you?
1: <laughs> mate, you obviously couldn't find any cool and interesting. I just happened to be walking <laughs> by the studio That is not dragged true, in.
0: <laughs> What is more cooler than a guy who, any time we watch the winning goal in the 2016 Scottish Cup final, is going to appear on our screen? What is more cooler than that?
1: <laughs> just one of those moments, mate. I don't know how I managed to get to where I did, but... Um, you still get messages asking, uh, where did you get this made? Folk think it's a Photoshop. It's like, <laughs> one of those things that you stick your head in the window at Blackpool Pier and somebody takes your picture. And and somebody puts it up. So.
0: Brilliant. It's absolutely magnificent. Um, Scream of Celica. So basically the concept is you come in, you pick a year, you pick two games from that year, and you pick an album from that year. And because I'm the host... I get to pick an album as well to actually speak about. So tell us the year that you're going to speak about.
1: So we're going to talk about the 94, 95 season. Um, That might strike some people as an obscure choice, given that we finished fourth that particular year. Um, But without context, um, you need to understand that I missed, I was too young to remember the sort of mid to late 80s um, and at that point in my Celtic supporting life, I hadn't—I don't remember Celtic winning a trophy. Um, so that season was the first time that I'd ever seen us lift silverware. And up until then, my Celtic education was based on watching VHS tapes of the glory years because there wasn't much to pick the bones out of in, in the years when I started going to watch these games. So for me. Yeah, maybe not a a classic in the memories of most um, not being in Celtic Park, etc. But um, it's one that has to be documented. A
0: lot of people would actually say it's the season that started the revolution.
1: Yeah.
0: uh, That we're still seeing at this precise moment in time or... or the revolution that maybe ended with the four trebles in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a season that made me speak about transitional seasons. And that was a transitional season mm-hmm. to end all transitional seasons. Um, and it has to be spoken about, I, mean, I must admit, um, Hamden was my first season ticket. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a very nice season. Being at Hamden, I probably still have post-traumatic stress anytime that I go to Hamden because of that whole season I was there. But there was some fabulous moments during that season that you now can look back on fondly. And it's one of those things, even the kit has aged better yep. in natural season, I think. Yeah? Yeah. The kit didn't they? I remember when it came out and people were going, what are you doing? Uh-huh. There's only there's only three hoops yep. on on the kit. And but when you look back on it now and you see guys still wearing that at the football, you go, that kit's actually aged far better. Agreed. Uh, how, how's that? So, what album are you going to pick from that year as well? So... Because for me, that's this is the height of Britpop. Yeah. This is this is me kicking about in a parker, uh-huh. kidding on am Liam Gallagher.
1: I think, um, for me, growing up listening to music, like, all you ever really get to hear is what's on the radio. As a, a boy then, there's no Spotify, there's no iPods. Um, you're basically either gifted your old man's record collection or you listen to the radio. Um, So all the Britpop stuff was going on um, and the family went on a holiday to the Republic of Ireland that summer, 1995. And it was one of those, what was it called? The the Emerald Isle tour, like a bus tour of (laughs) Ireland. Like my gran and papa were there, like mum, dad, brother and sister, everyone all um, for this family holiday. And um, this album was just different to anything I'd ever heard up to that point. You're talking, like, the height of Britpop, as you say, Blur and Oasis, Cast, um, and even, like, I think top of the charts is probably, like, Simply Red. So you've got to Take That. There's a a pop revolution going on at that point mm-hmm. in time. And this absolutely blew my mind. Um, so the album's Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette.
0: It is one of those albums, and it's set, I, think, I think it sold 33 million copies yeah. the last time it was counted. And even if you weren't into that sort of genre of music, I mean, we'll come to speak about that after we spoke about the games. You couldn't get right, you couldn't miss it mm-hmm. because it was that big at the time. The album that I'm going to speak about at that time is uh, Nirvana's Unplugged in New York. Yeah, incredible. Um, Folk who watch this program will actually know that I've spoke about Oasis and Blur to Death, so mm-hmm. I, I think I wanted to keep the transatlantic vibe yep. going, so I've decided to go for Nirvana, Unplugged. Let's talk about the Fat Boy. Eh? Yeah. What's your first
1: game? So the first game, um, I think we just had great aspirations that this season was going to go on to be better than what it transpired to be, um, but it's the two 0 game at Ibrox, um, so Tommy Burns' first game in charge of a. Celtic Rangers, um, and you, as you astutely pointed out to me before we started speaking, it was the first game with numbers in the back of the jerseys.
0: It was uh, that was the season where Celtic were basically forced to put numbers on the cap, mm-hmm. and for the first three games they had them on the sleeve. Yep, uh, and that, when you see footage of games when they had it on the sleeve, I think it looked all right. Mm-hmm. But obviously, the, the Scottish football authorities <laughs> at that time says we can't let these uppity. So and so is away with us, and they have to put numbers back on mm-hmm. the kit. <laughs> uh, a couple of interesting things about that, that game take that, more at that game as well.
1: <laughs> were they? Yes,
0: there is a picture of Robbie Williams and that season's Ranger kit. Mm-hmm. And seemingly, I think it was only Robbie Williams and uh, Mark Owen right. that were there, eh? But quite glad that we stuffed them anyway. Yeah, no, nah, definitely. Celtic team that day. So that this game was on the twenty seventh of August, nineteen ninety four. I was at Ibrox that day. This was my second visit to Ibrox. Uh, my first visit was was it would it have been the previous season. Frank Connor was in charge. We won in the last minute with, our, uh, with our Brian O'Neill header. Anyway, that was my first game there. Eh? So I leave Ibrox this 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 evening. Kevin Hankin, we just go to Ibrox and win. that's, that's what happens when, when I go. The Celtic team that day is Gordon Marshall, Mike Galloway, Mark McNally, Malky Mackay, Tom Boyd, Pat McGinley, Paul McStay, Peter Grant, John Collins, Andy Walker and Simon Donnelly. What names jump out to you when I actually read that team out?
1: Yeah, John Collins for a start. um, I think that was his last season at Celtic. It was, Um, yes. So for me growing up, John Collins was a, a bright light in an otherwise dark time. Um, obviously, Simon Donnelly, a, a young man at that stage. He was. Um, Andy Walker for not so good reasons, um, but yeah, I, I think um, the the changes in that team as it transpired through that season uh, were quite incredible. But when you look at that team and then look at the sort of key names in the opposition side, um, you can see the disparity at that stage also um, starting to shine through you
0: could see the disparity at that time but this was a game it was played after rangers had just been beaten off aek athens mm-hmm. in the midweek there was pressure on walter smith we dominated this game The two nothing actually they actually flattered rangers yep. at that point but it wasn't a vintage tommy burns performance as we began to grow in love mm-hmm. it was one of these performances that were it was quite sticky but on that day, we were far the better side. Yeah,
1: 100%. You're talking about an Andy Gorham at the absolute peak of his career. And those two goals placed anywhere else, he's getting to them. You know, some of the saves that he made that day were just ridiculous. There's there's a point in the second half where after a superb passage of play, Paul McStay goes through That's and right. hits the post. Hits the post, yes. um, But it was, it was utterly dominant. Um, and... You just you think it's going to set the tone, don't you, um, for this era which we're about to step into? Um, but yeah, just a great memory for me. I think I don't remember watching the game, Kev. I remember listening to it on the radio.
0: It was a Saturday afternoon. It was. It was a Saturday afternoon uh-huh. at three o'clock. This was before the time of like mass TV coverage. Mm -hmm. So we hadn't, even though the English Premier League had started on Sky, Scotland hadn't really caught up. I mean, the last Celtic Rangers game that wasn't on TV was the 5-1 game at Celtic Park in 1998. Mm -hmm. So it was at this point, I'm a bit like yourself, growing up in that, if Celtic were playing Rangers at Ibrox, You didn't go unless Mm -hmm. you got a ticket and I was too young. So you listened to it on the radio. Or, I I, I, I do remember this quite clearly, you used to go down the local park and you'd be watching your amateur team and you'd have fought with the radios listening to the actual game while you were watching another Mm -hmm. game of football. eh?
1: But I listened to it on the radio. um, So all I had was a a description of what happened that day, but I watched the, the highlights of it later on that night. And, well, I think... The, the opening goal is just one for the ages, people still talk about that nah. um, and I think it boosted sales of Adidas Predator boots in Scotland by 3 million percent uh, and there, were, there were boys in, in uh, playgrounds up and down the country trying to emulate John Collins' finish that day but blasting balls right over the fence out <laughs> into the car park It's,
0: it's a frightening finish yeah. It's John Collins' fifth goal against Rangers in six games and Andy Gordon's reaction for me is perfect, yeah. because he chucks one, he yeah. actually goes mental. Mm-hmm. But when you actually see how wide the ball goes round the wall, there's yep. no way he was stopping it. Nah. Is, it's pure technique by a guy that I'm privileged to actually have seen for six years in a Celtic jersey. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, he's one it for me. I don't think he actually gets credit for being one of the best Scottish football players in the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Definitely Collins, yep. and I don't know whether that's maybe something down to his personality or something. Yeah, like that. I think but, so. But it's John Collins. The fact that we had a midfield of John Collins and Paul McStay for six years is utterly frightening. Mm-hmm. And in this game, and this this is surprising to me. When you when you get to this point, Kevin, ninety four. You think McStay's and his thirties? He's only twenty nine.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: This game is he's two months from his thirtieth birthday in yeah. this game.
1: He's just been around for that long I know.
0: and it's you're going that should be a player at his peak mm-hmm. and and he's playing in a team where we're in transition yeah there's there's definite like cracks in that side mm-hmm. which would get proved a couple of months later when we go to with rovers and we will go back to ibrox and it's not a, it's not a joyous occasion on this, yep. on this time eh? but McStay and Collins that day were magnificent.
1: Unbelievable.
0: And it's an unbelievable parent they actually have had for six years. E- even the centre forwards, I mean, uh, Charlie Nicholas comes on.
1: That's right.
0: <laughs> for, I think he comes on for uh, Andy Walker, is a Donnelly? He comes on for one in on that. Yep. Nicholas is still kicking about at that point. Mm-hmm. You look at the papers following this game as well, Kevin, like Andy Walker's getting touted for a call up to Scotland again. And you're going, I just... Maybe it's just me, my memory looking back, mm-hmm. but it's it's quite difficult to go. You look at the names in this side. You, you look at the names in this side, and there's some of them. You go, they were journeymen mm-hmm. in a Celtic team, but we went that day to Ibrox and absolutely dominated a really good Rangers side. Mm-hmm. And and it's something that, again during the nineties, Kevin. We used to beat Rangers quite often. Yep. It's not like when we were. Like, you know what I mean? When we were completely dominant the 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 treble the treble years. Yes. And we were going there and scalping them five, one, four one They, mil, they five, never done one, that to mm-hmm. us during during, uh, during uh, their nine in a row mm-hmm. period, eh? And I often think that we got a lot of false dons. And this game's a false dawn.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Because we just thought we have got a team that can compete. The following week we go and draw one each with mother
1: Yeah, that's what it felt like for me, a false dawn. Um You you go into school on the Monday morning absolutely buzzing um, and it just doesn't materialise like that. Um, But yeah, for guys like McStay um, and that team who absolutely pulled the strings that day, um, it's great to watch it back now. Um, And and as you say, it wasn't a a classic Tommy Burns performance. It was just a team who were absolutely determined um, to go out there and get a result.
0: You've got guys like Tom Boyd there who would go and still play a major part in the Martin O'Neill either. Mm-hmm. You've got guys like Mike Galloway who was probably, he's past his peak Celtic period at this point. Mm-hmm. He had a couple of seasons under Liam Brady where he was utterly fantastic. Mm-hmm. He, he, was, he was a great player. But at this point, he is on his way out of the side. Yep. You've got Mark McNally who is much maligned. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, I think he played for Celtic for about four or five years, Yeah. but he just seemed, there was always a mistake in Mark McNally mm-hmm. and and Malky, Malky Mackay as well was just, nah, he, he wasn't a superb player. Pat McGinley would soon leave and go on to Hubs, yep. again McGinley was, I, I was really over the moon when we signed Pat McGinley
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it just didn't work out.
1: I forgot he was on the team like that day, um, looking Back, looking back on the game, um, I'd forgot he was there. But no, as you say, like some of those individuals in that team um, are approaching the end of their tenure with Celtic. Um,
0: there's, there's a, there, there is there's quite a bit of like transition going to happen, as I say, when we have a look at the next game. The changes in the team are utterly unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But again, this is one of the early... We all love Tommy Burns' teams, don't we? And this was an early highlight. This was his first Celtic Rangers game as manager. Mm-hmm. And he goes there and completely dominates. Yep. And as Celtic fans, we are eternally optimistic. Mm-hmm. You wrote a song called Celtic, my heart <laughs> and my soul. And and it, and it completely sums it up. And I'm, you're talking about going to school. I'm talking about jump jumping back on the supporters bus, going, This is going to be all right. Mm-hmm. The, the, Tommy's going to be fine because he was one of our own. And it gave you that we spark that it was going to be okay. And as what I usually do when looking at these, these games, I have a look back through the papers, Celtic wikis are really fantastic. Mm-hmm. Eh? And you, you see them in the papers or oh, Celtic could put up a title challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, Celtic didn't really need to spend money because it proves that there's a team there. And I would have bought that at that time, being a 20 year old guy, hook, line and sinker yep. and gone, aye, Mark McNally is great <laughs> yeah. and Mark McNally is brilliant. We will get away with playing Mike Galloway at centre half. Mm-hmm. Malcolm Mackay is a wee bit rough but uh, uh, he'll be fine. Yep. And I remember having those conversations Kevin, mm-hmm. time and time again. Yep. It's, it's good though man, it's really good to have that. I was quite glad that you asked, uh, asked us to look over that game eh? and it's one one of these things. Collins scores in forty-five minutes.
1: Yeah, just before half time. Just before mm-hmm. half
0: time. And it's well into injury time. Mm-hmm. And McStay scores in forty-seven minutes. Mm-hmm. So we've had the half time at Ibrox utterly joyous that John Collins has scored. Mm-hmm. We haven't settled in for the second half <laughs> and McStay puts us to <laughs> nothing up. The natives go they they go bush at this point. They're throwing scarves and everything yep. because They've got it in their head that they're going to win the Champions League. They're only two mm-hmm. years for a so-called Champions League semi-final. It yep. was brilliant.
1: And dismantled by a Celtic team, apparently, in disarray. In
0: disarray, eh? Absolutely fantastic. But we all know the season didn't really turn out that way. Eh, we go back there in November, got the Red over Cup final, obviously. That's uh, were you at the Rafe Rovers Cup thing? No I wasn't,
1: mm-hmm. I wasn't there but I just remember at the time everyone talking about how it was low level opposition when we were going to smash them and <laughs> it didn't work out that way
0: it, It's one of those feelings that you get in football Cairn that you just know it's not going to go your way and when Charlie Nicholas it was Nicholas, put us 2-1 up yeah. that day and they equalised virtually right away mm-hmm. Where Gordon Marshall spilling the ball. I'm actually having flashbacks. <laughs> <laughs> like even talking about it, you just go. This is no your day. Mm-hmm. Now, there's something, there's something in the wind here that we are not meant to win this game. Mm-hmm. And do you still get that now? There's certain games that you go to and you just go. This is not. Don't happening. fancy the day. this.
1: The last time I got that was probably um, the League Cup final, one 0 Fraser Foster. It didn't. Obviously, we left the trophy that day, but I just had this eternal dread, sat in my seat that day, thinking, this is just not our day. And it didn't feel like our day, did it? Mm-hmm. It just got to a point where you've... They've missed a penalty. Frimpong's sent off, and then you start to think, hold on a wee second, they're never scoring here. Um, but no, you do get those feelings on occasion. Um,
0: I was... That that league cup final that like you mentioned there, I was on a plane going to New York when that game was getting was getting played. Mm-hmm. So I had like intermittent WhatsApp messages coming through from my supporters' clubs, the mm-hmm. WhatsApp group eh? and like they were coming through and it was just like us going, we are rubbish, we are this <laughs> and that, i them, telling you the score, yep, and like.
1: I had to read forty messages. Uh, uh, to get uh, to uh, the none end. of them telling
0: you. None of them telling you a score. None of them telling you what's actually happening. That like, then there's a shout from the back of the plane, mm-hmm. and I'm going, what that "What's that? What's that?" Mean? So I've got my phone out and I'm refreshing. it, the battery's running down mm-hmm. because I'm constantly refreshing the phone, and it comes up. Yes, like, so I says, "Right, we're one that up." Then. You get the whole deluge of messages when Fing Pong gives away the penalty and gets sent off. Mm-hmm. Then you get the, then the roar for the then I get another roar for the back of the plane. There's one guy. It, it was Who was this guy
1: that brought the Netflix router up the back <laughs> of
0: the plane? <laughs> no. He roared as well, but there must have been a delay. Whatever he was watching it on, there was a delay. Mm-hmm. Because I knew they had missed the penalty by the time he shouted. Right. So there mm-hmm. must have been a it must have been a wee delay. Then the WhatsApp group went quiet. And I'm sitting on this plane gun. They're not troubling us mm-hmm. because the panicky messages for previous had then stopped completely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going. I'm either not getting any messages or nothing's happening. Well, they're no going to. They're not going to trouble us whatsoever. I think we'll move on to the second game soon. But I think, like when you actually think about it, that was a turning point for them, that game, because they came to Celtic part three weeks later and, and bet us was quite comfortable. Yeah. And that was when I realised that they had our number. Uh-huh. And that was, there was a tide turning here and yep. like, obviously we went on to win the league at a canter that mm-hmm. season as well. But, they two games were a pivotal moment. Yep. In um, my mind, then went, well, they've got us. Mm-hmm. And I think that changed the mi- mindset of them as a football team.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, but, there's, Something about supporting this team, Kev, that it takes years off your life, mate. See days like that. We There's definitely a lower life expectancy in Celtic fans <laughs> than, than, than any other team. They just put us through the absolute ringer, don't they? But we keep coming back.
0: Last-minute winners are, are worth it, though. I know. The, the last-minute winner is absolutely worth it. Mm-hmm. I mean, aye, it's something. Why do you keep coming back? Why do we keep putting ourselves through stuff like this? Um... It's, it's in your blood, eh? I know. Uh, I mean, if you spoke to any sane person who has no interest in football whatsoever, Mm -hmm. and you say, this is a sport that I'm obsessed with. I'm obsessed with players that I can't control. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm obsessed with things that I can't control in a football field. And it clouds my moods for days, weeks after it. They'll go, you are absolutely stupid.
1: Mm-hmm. Just don't understand. It's um, Try explaining it to someone. Um, try and quantify it in any other terms other than football. There's just nothing that could compare to that. You, you're sat in your seat going, if we don't get a result today, we're going to drop points. Rangers are going to catch us, blah, blah, blah. And then the ball hits the net We. <laughs> on the sixth minute of injury time, and mm-hmm. it ju- everything changes. Like what? What else goes like that? It's just crazy.
0: There's, there's no way. Eh? There's no way I'd really describe it. And this is how it's a worldwide language mm-hmm. because only other football fans. I think we feel it a lot better, and I feel we, I feel that like we feel it a lot more than other football fans because we see Celtic as far bigger than just a football club. Mm-hmm. It's more. It's it's family, it's a culture, it's a heritage. That's maybe only the supporters are now carrying that on and the, the football club just mainly sees it as a brand yep. and something like that. But the fans keep it going. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes, I've been going to games since 1982 and there's sometimes I sit and wonder why do I still do this? Mm-hmm. Then. My daughter started going to the games with me now, and she's got right into it. And yep. I go, This is the reason why I do it. My supporters' bus is the reason why that we do it with the guys, mm-hmm. like-minded guys on, and girls on, on that bus. That's the reason why I do it. And but there is times when I equally love and hate my football club in April measure. I love the pitch. I love what happens on the pitch. I love the connection that you can get with the players. We're going to talk about the cup final at the end of the 95 season and the connection that we had with certain players at that point. But I utterly despise the business side of it.
1: I know. Aye, but as as long as there's, there's guys like yourself, Kev, that you take your daughter at the game and she doesn't grow up in a world where that sort of corporate identity that the club has is carried forward, what she carries forward is the same ideology that you have about Celtic, the same that I pa- that I pass on to my nephews. Kieran started going to the games mm-hmm. with us now. Um he's only four. He's coming to Celtic Park, And just the look of wonder in his face when you 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 bring him out into the stadium for the first time is just incredible. Um and they'll carry that on into the next generation, and the next generation and that uh, that feeling they'll never die. Um, regardless of what the PLC is doing. Definitely.
0: um, How how did you get introduced to Celtic? As
1: I say, mate, so I was born in 1984, so I'm introduced to the world when Celtic are... Things like Love Street. I'm Mm -hmm. too young, I don't remember it. The centenary season, too young, I don't remember it. My introduction to Celtic is through these videos of... Watching the Lisbon Lions, watching the Jimmy Johnston story on VHS tapes. Down at my papa's house, hearing stories that my dad would tell about um, about watching Celtic do the original nine in a row, um, being away at Hibs and talking about the atmospheres at the game, and just being absolutely encapsulated by by these stories that that were told. Because what was happening in the pitch that at that time was not that- reflective of what I was being told about what Celtic were. Um, so things like um, my first game was at home to Neuchâtel-Samax in the UEFA Cup. Wow. So Celtic won that night, mm-hmm. but what a seven-year-old Kevin Miles could not understand is that we'd got thumped away from home prior to that and it didn't matter. We were out the, of out the tournament, but what? I didn't care. I was sat in what? the main stand watching this team that I'd heard all these things about. What,
0: it, a 17-year-old Kevin Graham? <laughs> realised about that night was I'm going to the Barrowlands and no going to the game. <laughs> <laughs> I went to see James at the Barrowlands that uh-huh. night, my first ever gig at the Barrowlands and I made the choice. I went, I'm going to the Barrowlands. I
1: think you made the right choice. <laughs> I think you made the right choice. I think we missed a penalty but went not to win the game Jared anyway Nicholas but, but lost lost by. the tie. Mm-hmm. Um, and from then on, it was just sporadic um, going to see game. Didn't have season tickets at that point um, and the 1995 Scottish Cup final against Airdrie was the first time that I'd ever seen Celtic yeah, lift
0: this, this is the team that made you believe that fairy tales were possible. Absolutely. The centenary team was my team. Mm-hmm. So they're still members of that centenary team still there in 95. So I've went full circle mm-hmm. at, at that point. It's interesting that you actually mentioned the corporate bit there. Eh? This is the start of corporate Celtic as well. Yep. And I'll, even though we'll thank Fergus till our last breaths, mm-hmm. this was the start of Celtic moving into the modern world. Yeah. And it's... Can be thankful. There's some things to be thankful for, I know, but, but I I think think there's other things. W- when you're from.
1: talking about that, the start of that season, and we know that there's this brand new stadium going to be awaiting yeah. us at the start of the following year, um, and we just need to sort of fight our way through the pain barrier until we get there because there's a brighter future. And but you and I have been talking about this for a while, um, sort of like putting this together, and I'm, I'm trying to refresh my memory of of what what happened because I'm just coming out of primary school when this is all going mm-hmm. on. Um, and I just remember the, the clamber for tickets for this game. And they played the game at Hamden, which for us represented a home advantage in, in, in certain respects. Um, there was talk about the game maybe being shifted to Ibrooks because there were works ongoing at the time. There was only going to be a limited number of tickets, and my dad came in. I've got good news and bad news. We've got tickets for Hamden, but they're in the Airdrie end. So.
0: I mean, I, I can't. <laughs> but I've I've been lucky enough to meet your family, Kevin. Eh? And you're not good-looking guys. You would have stood out <laughs> like a sore Fum uh, in the Airdrend.
1: Aye. Well, we're literally <laughs> me, my dad, and my brother are, are, are sitting amongst a sea of red and white, um, just with <laughs> nondescript colours, and,
0: and orange and blue. <sighs> you're
1: just uh, you're trying to. My dad's going to do it. If we score, you can't celebrate and uh, just sit and be quiet and just watch it and. Um, just be thankful that, we're, that you're here and you're able to see this. Because the only silverware I'd seen Celtic lift up to that point was the Tennis Sixes trophy. And as a wee guy, the that the was 60s. something to be celebrated, wow, you know. Definitely. Um, when I went to school, everyone in my class was a Celtic fan, but the Janny was a Rangers fan. He used to give you it stinking at playtime. Um, about the state of the team and everything else and the team that I played football with at the time um, there was a lot of Rangers fans in that team they used to get absolutely berated off the boys for being a Celtic fan finished fourth that season Um, but it's that everlasting hope that you just carry on into the next season and the next season
0: definitely when this season started going pear-shaped and and this, this is a period where I really got the bug for going even though I used to go with my dad and, and stuff like that, I started working in 1992. And so I started going myself and going to places like Brockville and, and in 5-4, going to Brimfield drawing more each, watching Tony Cascarino sky a polis woman and, and stuff <laughs> like that. And, and you're like, wow, but it was great fun. It was absolutely mm. brilliant fun because I just thought this is all I want to do. Yep. All I want to do is listen to music and watch Celtic uh-huh. and that's what my work's going to pay for. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why I've never found a career or anything like that because <laughs> early, in my early early days I just wanted to <laughs> buy records, watch Celtic. Um, but you always had that hope as I say, I spoke mm-hmm. about hey, Matt McNally's fine. He's going to be good. And yep. You just, you just had that kind of hope. Nin- the 95 Cup Final comes around and what I remember in the lead up to the 95 Cup Final as you say it was going to be our last game at Hamden mm-hmm. there was a clamber for tickets but I was a season ticket holder and I think we only had about 21,000 season ticket holders there was only 37,000 allowed at the game yeah. because the south stand there was work getting done on the south stand Jim Farry had d- diddled the lottery money to stop Celtic getting the fund mm-hmm. to build their stadium as well but that's a whole other podcast <laughs> um, so I got a ticket quite easily because I was at my season ticket holder but I remember the build up to this game and your build up would have been the exact same your dad telling you mm-hmm. we've got tickets but it's a the air drain yep. you wouldn't have been bored about that you're just a you wee laddie to be there. you just mm-hmm. wanted to be there and I remember us slightly older buying the new kit Everybody on the bus yep. had to have that new that's kit. That's
1: right. It was, they released a new kit They're, before the game. They released a the new uh-huh. kit the
0: week before the game. They released yep. a new kit. And that's stood up well the test of time as well. hundred percent, aye. It's, it's baggy, eh? It's a, a nice baggy yep. kit. I love that kit. I really do. I've still got my original kit and mm-hmm. it still fits me.
1: But the, as you said, that the, the kit that we, we used during that season was split opinion Big fat hoops with the Umbro logo sort of etched uh, into them, and then for the next season, it, it goes back to really what it should be. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's classic kit that one. You know, it's still
0: a kind of concept kit though because it's still got different sizes of hoops and yep. it's got the Celtic run running through the hoops, uh-huh. and it's got one of the big floppy collar, which That's was right, in aye. vogue at that time, mm-hmm. eh? Especially Umbro, and it's especially it's great memories linked with that kit because you've got that Scottish Cup one then you've got the following season, you have got the free amigos, where eventually wear that kit. Yep. George Cadet scoring his first goal in that kit. There's a lot of memories linked mm-hmm. to that kit. And I remember talking to a kit designer once, and he says, he says, that's what you do. You mm-hmm. have a look back through the ages, and you have a look, and you can go, what what kit can we sort of redesign? Yeah. And you go back to it. Ah, no, they're still they're, doing it. They've never went anywhere near that one, mm-hmm. or the free hooked one, yep. eh? but you've noticed in the last couple of years, been a couple of variations, well, oh, that's that top. Yep. They keep on going back to the centenary top, I think, mm-hmm. and the Lisbon top. Eh? But I on the lead up to that game, everybody must have wanted to have that kit. Mm-hmm. And again, that is, uh, for me, now, even uh, just because I've says that out loud, that is a first step in a modern Celtic, mm-hmm. creating, creating a demand for a kit because it's going to be worn on a special occasion. Yep. I never remember that before.
1: No, no. I, I, only that you're talking about it now that I remember the kit changed before the Cup Aye. Final. And, and that's the one that when you see Pierre van Hooydunk, that's the kit that I remember. You never remember. Him. I don't him. remember him being in the, in the, the, the kit with the, the, uh, with the thick hoops. No,
0: you didn't remember um, him being in that at all. No, it's always this kit that you remember right, yeah. him being in. The Celtic team that day, Pat Bonner's back in goals. Yep. 36-year-old Pat Bonner mm-hmm. back in goals. Rudy Vata has now broken into the side. Uh, Tom Boyd, Mark McNally's still there. Mm-hmm. Mark McNally's still there. Uh, I think he would have been at centre-half that day. Tosh McKinley's been brung in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian McLaughlin, uh, wee Eddie Munster as he was called. <laughs> Peter Grant, Paul McStay, John Collins, Simon Donnelly and Pierre Van Hoydonk. You look at the two teams, what a change in the eight eight months, eh?
1: Yep. I mean, is Pat Bonner in that team because of what Gordon Marshall did in the, the League Cup final? Or is he... <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I watched a bit, of, um, a bit of footage not too long ago, and it shows you the, the, the team preparing for this game at the Seamill Hydro. And um, they're doing sprints, and it shows you Gordon Marshall versus Pat Bonner, and Pat Bonner's quicker than Gordon Marshall at 36 years of age. So there's got to be something in there. But I, I love pa- Packy Bonner. That was one of these VHS tapes that I used to watch Aye. was the Packy Bonner story, saving the penalty for Republic of Ireland in the World Cup against Romania. Um, but again, you're talking about Pat Bonner sort of getting to his twilight years at Celtic at well, that stage.
0: Well, he had left and came back yeah. because Burns became the manager. uh uh-huh. So he, he was, I think he was actually moving to Kilmarnock. Yep. And when Burns says, Well, I'm Steps actually going to Celtic, mm-hmm. he, he actually stepped in. But he's 36 year old. I knew no, no, you're actually saying that. I'm going, I'm trying to jog my memory. Maybe some of the viewers can leave some comments. How did he handle the pass back rule? Because you couldn't have picked the ball up anymore, That stopped in 1992. Yep. So. How did he? Ha- I can't actually remember him having a horror show with the kicking. I Can remember Gordon Marshall though no, yeah. being too comfy with with the balls at his feet. But it's, there is a Twitter account. I don't know if you've actually seen it, and it's go. It's called Eighties Goalkeepers, <laughs> uh, kicking the ball, and it's and it's just like a series of videos of like Dave Besant, Steve or and that just booting the ball, mm. <laughs> like, like, like. <laughs> taking goal kicks and just horsing the ball yeah. and that's how I can remember a part one just getting the ball and ho- horsing it and it's a changing game at this point and Tommy mm-hmm. Burns was actually seen as more modern than what Lou Macari was actually seen and he was going to bring Celtic into this modern age and you can see by the players that he's actually brought in like Van Hoydonk was a, a very, very good te- technical player, We uh, McLaughlin even though his Celtic career never probably hit any sort of great heights, mm-hmm. but he's a diminutive Celtic winger. Yes. It's what Burns would want in a Celtic team. Like I want a wee winger mm-hmm. to, to actually create stuff. So there's a bit of Celtic tradition in there. Uh, and you've still got a midfielder, Grant McStay and Collins. I mean, Grant, Grant and McStay, I, I just find this, the Centenary team was the team that I fell in love with, him, right? Mm-hmm. And the fact is, You've still got Grant and McStay in that team, like nine, I eight years, eight nine years later. It's, uh, it blows my mind now when mm-hmm. I actually think about it.
1: Yeah, and he absolutely ran the show that day, Peter Grant. Oh,
0: Peter Grant was immense that day. It's his final. Yes, it is his final, and I don't think his performance that day is spoke about enough. Mm-hmm.
1: There was when I watched this this match again, and it's it's not one for the ages, you know. No, um absolutely. It's, um, you done
0: and me? I couldn't watch it back. Yeah, I,
1: I, 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 if I confess, I just watched the highlights. I couldn't watch the full ninety minutes. But there's a there's a um, a point in this game where really late on, Peter Grant makes a fifty yard run to shut down the right back from playing a long ball, and just the desire for them to to be involved at that stage in the game and I think he, he was coming back from injury at that point he, as well he was,
0: he was very I, lucky to make the game
1: yeah it was a doubt Um in the post-match interview Tommy Burns was talking about it to say we didn't think he was going to make it and it's a miracle that he, he made the game let alone last 90 minutes never mm-hmm. got subbed off wanted to be there and the post-match scenes are just unbelievable Kev like the ah. the, the relief and the, the outpouring yes. of emotion that comes after that game is just incredible and we sat and watched it for the for the wrong end, being abused by Airdrie by fans on the I, road out.
0: I mean, you've got a long time to wait. I mean, we haven't even spoke about the goal. We'll, we'll talk about the post-match, but the goal, that ball by Tosh McKinley is a thing. It's an art form. It should be hanging up in the Louvre. <laughs> it, it is the perfect ball. Mm-hmm. Big Van Hoyden didn't need to do much. Nah. It's a, it's a fair leap by Van Hoyden right enough, but the ball by Tosh McKinley is... Utterly delicious. It's one of the best crosses in Celtic's history.
1: Yeah. I think. That was incredible. But to see that going in and Big Pierre just going up and dunk in at the back post. Well, you're probably jumping up and down and hugging the the person nearest to you. My dad's got a hold of me under my jacket saying, (laughs) don't move.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's that game as well. We attacked the Celtic end in the first half. Mm-hmm. Which is really unusual. Yeah. I don't know I don't know who won the toss, it's probably Airdrie trying to be Airdrie and yeah. trying to unsettle Celtic be t- turning turning us round.
1: I seen um a bit of interesting trivia on that as well. Um apparently the that Airdrie team were in some sort of, I think a French football um, fanzine had decided yes. to put an article on them because they had a record for over 100 hundred yellow cards in a season or it was something horrible like that. just absolute hatchet men nah, um, in, in our, our brand of football or, or what that team came to be you would think they would just play around them but like Sir Brian McLaughlin who, who you mentioned I know um, from memory from my pap absolutely slaughtering him back in the day, the final product was never there but he was never afforded an opportunity to go buy a man because he just got
0: packed down there. any
1: opportunities um.
0: that, that that game uh, John Collins admits after the game that him and McStay were man marked mm-hmm. and they couldn't find any space and I, and I think this is why for me and you've already confirmed it as well it's not just my mind playing tricks on me that it is a Peter Grant final it was a Peter Grant type game mm-hmm. it was all Blood, sweat, tears, aggression. D- aggression. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what we needed, and that's what we needed in the middle of the park. Tom Boyd as well was a hardy bit of stuff. Even though Tom Boyd could play football, he was a hardy uh, bit of stuff. Tosh McKinley yep. can handle himself can handle himself as well, eh? But I think the longer this game we scored in nine minutes. And I think the panic sets and I think the, the the ghost of Rafe Rovers mm-hmm. is hanging over us by the time yep. we get to 50, mm-hmm. 55. And the team I think I think the, the team gets like suffocated with that. Mm-hmm. And I think the fans got suffocated with yeah. that as well.
1: It's too early, Kevin. It's happened before then and it's happened after The one that sticks in my mind is um against St. Johnston, the game where we stop the ten and Henry mm-hmm. scores the goal on two minutes. It's too. It settles the nerves, but it's too early because the longer it goes on, the longer you think that that equaliser's coming. And as you say, that, that Wraith Rovers Cup final's hanging over us.
0: The, the equal. You think the equaliser's coming and Miff now has, like, George O'Boyle's header nearly going in the back of the net. He misses it by a week. Yeah. But everybody goes, I ah, he nearly scored. He went, no, he didn't. The, the ball uh-huh. went miles over the bar. Revisionism. Uh, i stopped revi- mm-hmm. revising this. Yep. It's just because we were sitting there panicking. Mm-hmm. And I must admit, I was sitting in Hamden that day, you're still mentally scarred by Rafe Rovers mm-hmm. and you're only one nothing up, and your big players are no playing, mm-hmm. and you're going. Oh, we're just going to need to hang on here, yep. and you didn't want to hang on because in the back of your mind, Kevin, you're going. They score here. I did not think we've got the mental fortitude to they actually overcome this. Yeah, All
1: right, it The game runs on, and it, any, it didn't matter that it was an ugly win. It just it was about getting the monkey off our back and just. As I say, that outpouring of emotion when the final whistle goes and you see Paul McStay going up to... You want it to be him more yes. than anybody I, else. Yeah, that,
0: this, that was the biggest thing.
1: And, and watching it from from the wrong end, we're the only people left. A couple of Celtic fans round about us. And it's just like this flood of relief that sets over you. Um,
0: As a flood of relief. I actually wrote it down It says once people say one and ugly is a thing, this was the only time it warranted he'd ugly. Mm -hmm. We just needed to, as you say, we just needed to get that monkey off our back and to see guys like Peter Grant in tears at the final whistle. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, this is for my family, this is for the fans. Tommy, and and his first season back going, the fans deserve this. Paul, going, Mm -hmm. Aye, the fans deserve it. And there's a great photo, an iconic picture now, he burns and makes at the final whistle, hugging each other. Mm -hmm. And as you say, it's not a memorable cup final, but it's memorable in the moment of Celtic stalwarts, true Celtic men. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's memorable for that because they got the reward
1: eventually. Mm -hmm. But it's just, it's a turning of the tide Mm -hmm. for... Not just in the short term, Kev, but as you say, that carried us so many years into the future and, and Celtic win that cup final and you just start to become optimistic about the next season because you're so far behind in terms of the league and Rangers are charging on for their own nine in a row and everything's just about stopping this. And that summer comes around and, and you hear Tommy Burns speaking after that game and uh, have you got a few a few quid to spend in the summer, Tommy? I think. Uh, maybe Jim White's interviewing him. And um, he says we've already identified the players that we want. It's just a case of going and bringing them in. So he's looking at the three amigos at that stage. Do you know what I mean? Bringing in your uh, Andy Tom and bringing in um, Paulo Di Canio, um, George Cadet. Like these guys are have been earmarked at that stage. You would think to come in like and, and signing
0: with Stubbs that summer, I think. Stubbs, really yeah, Stubbs that summer. Um, right? But
1: that was that was big money again mm-hmm. in 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 that first year of Celtic becoming the. The company, you know, rather than just this entity that we hold on to, like we bought into it. That was the first year that we'd season tickets. Was the season following that? Right. Um, and it just that that hope that we carried home. through from the summer was was everything.
0: Scottish cups played a major part in Celtic, eh? mm-hmm. and I think that's why we always look for ninety. 90- Won in the league in ninety five, we won the league in sixty five under Jock Steen mm-hmm. So right away that you've got that this connection. Tommy's won the Scottish Cup in his mm-hmm. first season same as Steen. Aye, everything's going to be yep. every, everything's going to, everything's going to be fine. But obviously, that was a couple of years later. But. That Tommy Burns Celtic that he burn, that he, that he built is still one of the greatest sides that I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's all very well you and I sitting talking about it just now in retrospect and, and what happens, happens. Vim Jansen comes in and ultimately stops the 10. But the steps that Celtic had taken in that season and the season following that, if Tommy Burns had been given the opportunity to stay and manage the club through the 97-98 season, would tear stopped Rangers? I think he would.
0: I don't know. but by, by the time by the time we were getting beat off Falkirk i broke in that semi-final, me being a match-going fan week in, week out at that, that point, I knew that he had lost it at that point. Mm-hmm. And for the sake of the man, for the legend, I think I was actually quite relieved for him. Mm-hmm. That, that that pressure was too often?
1: I don't know. I, maybe, maybe my view of it's just skewed because Tommy Burns, growing up... I would have loved it to stop Yeah, at, um, I mean, I, we, we met him uh, on holiday. Um, there's a picture of me. Tommy Burns is holding me as four or five years old. Um, and I think I just wanted it for him more than anything else, you know, for the mm-hmm. same reason that Moon McStay went up to lift that trophy. Wanted we it for wanted Paul McStay. For Paul. I wanted the league for Tommy Burns and like Vim Jansen for what he did to come in and turn that around in, in a season and obviously we see people drawing parallels now from see, um, from Vim Jansen coming in and, and the, the change in a season to what Postacoglu is doing now coming in off the back of what he inherited um, That's all still to be decided Still to be decided so it's Still yeah. to be decided as we that's recording this You mentioned
0: this was John Collins last season Yeah Right. The News of the World back page the following day John Collins, I'm leaving Celtic. He Mm -hmm. gave an interview at the News of the World to say that they want to bring in players and I'm willing to go to bring in to to, to let Tommy rebuild the side. Nice spin, John, an absolutely fantastic spin. I I think he name
1: dropped a couple of clubs that were into him at that point.
0: Fulham, Middlesbrough were we're, we're the two there. But what really surprises me, and this is maybe, again, this is my mind playing real tricks on me. He says, as they were travelling back from Hamden, he he couldn't hear the calls on his mobile phone because the bus was uh, that Mm -hmm. noisy. I'm going 95, you had a mobile phone?
1: Yeah.
0: It must have been massive.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A separate trailer getting towed (laughs) behind the bus with with John College phone phone on it. mobile
0: phone's a thing in 1995. (laughs) (laughs) Not that I remember. I can't remember many guys carrying mobile phones in nineteen ninety-five. No. I mean I still remember like being in pubs in that time the pubs' mm-hmm. phone was red hot way with, yep. with wives and girlfriends looking for looking for husbands I and John Collins has got a, a
1: mobile phone. If you were cutting about in a seven series you'd have had one in the centre console but I don't remember <laughs> an actual mobile phone. It's just when I
0: read it and I'm going, a mobile phone <laughs> Obviously you've seen them in the 80s where the yuppies and the, when you look back and all these and you've got the yuppies with a big massive antennas yep. and all that. It must have been like that the boy Jolly one, eh?
1: Oh the, I, uh, the, Dom Jolly. Dom Jolly. I, it must uh-huh. have been something like that that you Trigger good to
0: be. Ah <laughs> it was a great day. A great <laughs> end. A great end to a troubling season. Yep. Now, let's go into music. You've already mentioned Jagged Little Pill. Um, this album was released on the 13th of June, 1995, so a couple of weeks after this cup final, yep. you went on holiday the tour of the Emerald Isle. Yes. <laughs> it sold 33 million copies, last count. One again what surprised me, it was her third album.
1: Yes, that's right. She'd just been dropped by the record label before this, this album was penned, effectively. Aye. Um, so a massive departure in style from where she was, and, and don't get me wrong, I, this was my first exposure to Alanis Morissette. I didn't know anything about those two albums at that at that stage. As I said, my education in music was what my dad had listened to and what I heard on the radio, and that for me stood out above everything else. I'm um, going to put my
0: hand up here. I didn't realise that you had any other albums until I started researching uh-huh. for this interview. Yeah. I mean, what's your two albums before that? Uh-huh. Really?
1: Yep, totally, totally different. Um, listening back now you would say that she found an identity on Jagged Little Pill.
0: Definitely. And another thing that jumped out at me as well, there's a lot of, I says to my wife, I says, look, I'm, I'm interviewing Kevin Miles on Monday and the album that he's picked is Jagged Little Pill. And she went, I love that album. And I remember that she does mm-hmm. really love the album. So we were out on Saturday and she put it on. Mm-hmm. And as I say, I'm on a completely different like, musical journey at this point. And it's amazing the amount of songs that I actually like remember hearing getting played constantly at mm-hmm. that point. And it's like post-grunge. And the, the guy who co-wrote it with her, Glenn Ballard, yes. he plays the guitar lines on it. And listening back to some of these guitar lines, they're like stone loops. And it's like a 15-year-old trying not to make a mistake mm-hmm. on these guitar licks. But they're so simple, Kevin that they actually embed themselves in your head yep. and as you say she did find her voice on that album and for me hand in pocket is the f- best song on that album way an utter week
1: yeah i think if i cast my memory back to where i was at that time i bought the album in a record shop in dublin so it had the parental advisory warning mm-hmm. in the front of it so i'm as i said i'm only 11 years old and i go in and try and put on my deepest voice and stand up on my tiptoes <laughs> at the counter and um, and I buy this album and I've got a, a discman on the bus. Right. So like I, I'm at an awkward age at that stage where my brother's three years younger than me, so he's eight and he's just annoying me at that stage. Like I'm approaching my teenage years. I just want to be home with my out playing with my pals and I've been dragged along on this bus holiday around Ireland, going to like the Blarney store and stuff like that where a bunch of like pensioners, basically, and and her family on this bus.
0: We've been in lockdown for two years. That sounds perfect. Sounds, <laughs> so <laughs> sounds brilliant.
1: Man. I, I literally and, and another funny thing. So I've got this disc discman and um it's ran out of batteries. And I ran into a shop um, with my pocket money, and I I learned a, a lesson that day that the the twenty four pack of batteries for a pound do not last the duration <laughs> of an album. It just buy the jury cells and get over undone with. So, um, yeah, I just listened to this album on a loop. Um, and every single song, I think, it's, it's different now because music's so disposable, Kev. Like, Aye. if, if people, they, they, they sound like a, like a feather, but the younger generation, people who are listening to music now, they've got access to Spotify. If somebody doesn't like a song within five, ten seconds, they just skip it to the next song. But... For you and I growing up with a record player probably, this CD was just access to whatever songs I wanted to listen to Mm -hmm. and it was all the ones that I heard on the radio so you ought to know, uh, One Hand in My Pocket, Ironic, Jagged Little Pill. The rest of the songs didn't feature much at, at that stage. But,
0: you, you ought to know, eh. That uh, so the guy for Rage Against the Machine plays the guitar on that, and Flea plays the
1: bass. I didn't know that. Uh, I didn't know that. I think quite interestingly, at the time, her band was made up of the guitarist was out. He was, he was in the Chili's briefly when Dave Navarro was having a wobbly. Um, and that's uh, how sorry, he
0: ended up. Dave Navarro is the chili's eye. Yeah. It, it was the chili peppers that yeah. played on you, ought, you ought to know.
1: Yeah, so he, he, um, he was in the band briefly and the drummer was Taylor Hawkins. Aye. So again, obviously quite poignant speaking about that uh, just now. Well, that, um, that's
0: came out over the last day, day or so after after t- Taylor's actually passed away. Yeah. That he first met Dave Grohl on tour with Alanis Morissette. Yeah. And he says the Foo Fighters were his favourite band. Mm-hmm. And I I reading that I went, that's bizarre. Uh-huh. that's that bizarre. That's coming out and I was coming to speak to you a couple nah. of
1: days well you, you and then. I have been talking about doing this for a long time right. and, and that album's always been the, the, the sort of choice I, <laughs> I could have picked a, a number of albums in a number of years to go but I don't uh, think uh, it would probably, have got, got much traction mate. I think it would be switching the telly off and...
0: that probably brings me to the next question so you you, you, you join a heavy metal band called Yashin yeah how did you tell them that a said Morissette was one of your favourite albums growing up
1: right so the the van when we were on tour had a CD player in it um, and if you were driving you got to pick the tunes so it was always like me, Paul and Andy it was only three of us in the band that would drive and Andy was always like Funeral for a Friend were um, a huge influence on in us so we would bring a CD into the van and wherever we were going that would get played and if you didn't drive you were onto plums because I'm driving and I'm listening <laughs> to whatever I want to listen to so I think over a the period of maybe two or three years, I plucked up the courage to bring Jagged Little Pill in at the van and play it. And Paul gives us a bit of a roasting about it. He thinks he thinks that I'm just trying to be a hipster and that I don't actually like this album. I'm just bringing it along. It'd be controversial. And then a couple of other boys piped up like, I love that album. So I think it was one of those sort of like, well, for a, for a band like us and, and being in the circles that we were in, it was probably a guilty pleasure. But for me, like, as I said, when I was 11, I listened to the singles, and as I got older, the album just became a constant. Like if I went for a walk, I would put it on, and I started to identify with the other tracks that were on this album, mm-hmm. the sort of like the lesser known ones. Um, but I couldn't have been alone because, as you say, thirty-three million records. I think I she was the second biggest-selling female artist of all time at, at the stage where the, where this album had um, had hit its peak. Um, so it was just, mate, for me. It just epitomised everything that I wanted to hear in a band at that stage in my life. I was maybe, like, being weaned off pop tunes. That was like a sort of post-grunge sort of... It,
0: it, has, thing. Got, it has got a post-grunge sound, yep. but it's cleaned up. It's really it's not as fuzzy and scuzzy yep. as what it was, but it has got that edge. Mm-hmm. There's definitely an edge there, which... The those who are more intelligent than me term it as post-grunge, yes. whatever that means. But, that's...
1: but I think I, ju- I was looking for something at that stage and, and as I said, like I, I inherited some of my dad's music so I would listen to, like um, he had the Deep Purple in vinyl, they yes. had a bit of uh, Meatloaf was there as well. Um, there was a Queen Live album from Nebworth um, that, that I liked when I was a wee guy as well. Um, and, and when I was going through school, I had a pal... Um, who was right into Green Day and Metallica. So he would bring a tape in and I would like get a tape for him and we would swap. Um, and Green Day, I think it was Insomniac was the album that was out at the time, and then Metallica was the Black album. Um, so that was me sort of starting to veer away from what all my pals were listening to, which was like your Oasis and Blood and the sort of like Pop indie revolution at the time. And Jagged Little Pill was just something that like, yeah, the, yeah. It, like if if you like went to school and wanted to talk about an album like with your pals or whatever like that's how you end up listening to new music and any different things this wasn't something that somebody went you need to listen to this i just decided mm-hmm. i love this and it wasn't something that i shared with anybody else i just kept it to myself and like but she's obviously one of the biggest female artists of all time, um, so it, def- I couldn't have been alone, despite no, the fact no,
0: that at the time, I thought- there, And I think anybody, there's maybe a bit of musical sort of snobbery, especially guys round about your age, who were mm-hmm. maybe 11, 12 at that time. That album's made an impact. If you're into any sort of music whatsoever, yep. that album is in your consciousness. Yeah. And like, ironic, I mean, the song, Ironic, is massive. Yeah. I, I really did think it was the first single, but it turns out it was the fourth or the fifth single, mm-hmm. actually, taken taken from the album, eh? And if you're in, Like, I'm into the Britpop stuff and all of that at that time, but even I knew five or six songs off this album yep. just because... Of the, the, it was a monster. Mm-hmm. It was an absolute monster of an album. So anybody saying no, no, no that didn't affect me whatsoever. It did. It was mm-hmm. there in a part. Even if you're in your watch van, it would be on. Yeah. Radio One's playing it. The Radio One's playing, Alanis Morissette's new new single. Eh? So, mm-hmm. what metal albums were you listening at that time? Because I'm very conscious that I always get slagged on this that. You didn't talk about metal enough. That's because I've got no concept of metal whatsoever. So what metal albums would you recommend around about that I time th- I for was, the viewers who I, have al- shouted at me? I here, think actually.
1: 1995 is probably a bit early for me. So you've maybe got bands like Pantera around about that time. You've got Korn's self-titled album, mm-hmm. um, which would have been out there or thereabouts. I think for me, it was probably a couple of years after that where like, I started to hear about bands like Rage Against the Machine. Mm-hmm. Um, Limp Biscuits' first album was maybe ninety seven, ninety eight, three dollar bill, y'all. Um, and from there on, it just sort of starts to pick up. And when it hits ninety nine, two thousand, I am in my metal, two, element, me- yeah. metal
0: element. Metal uh-huh. element. When did you join Yashin? Two
1: thousand and eight. December two thousand and eight. But, but Kev, kind of, I was in bands right through school with, with pals that I'm, I'm still really, really close with. Um, like influenced by those sort of bands, like like maybe like virgin from metal into post-hardcore so bands like funeral for a friend were starting to appear um thrice um atreyu like these sort of post-hardcore bands at that stage um but yeah i, I could have picked a dozen bands in a dozen years of and in, in albums which for me are intrinsically linked with seasons um but this was the first that I remembered. It was the most important. Um, it's a
0: gateway album
1: Yeah, 100%. And I, and I think, like, I, I, as I said, I kept this to myself. And then years later, I remember watching Dogma, the Kevin Smith film. Yes. I and know. she's revealed as God towards <laughs> the end of the film. Like, it's just like, I mean, Kevin Smith must have felt the same way I did at the time. And I remember... Um, they, there was a documentary released a while ago um, about the recording of this album, and, and Alanis Morissette speaks about it, and she's saying that she was basically so deflated at what had happened off the back of the record label and what was happening in her personal life at that time, and she decided to go in and record the album, co-write. Um, they
0: seemingly, again, when I'm reading up on it, seemingly the the, the majority of the rough demos are still there yes, in the mix. Yes, yeah, that's right, yeah. So it does, when I was listening to it at the weekend there, there is that sort of, there is a sort of lo-fi element it's to raw, it. it is. But I didn't know whether that's just because they've remastered it. Yeah, obviously that's right. Yeah. Got they,
1: the done a, it, it it? they done I think it was 2015, they've done a 20th anniversary, like a re-release and, they, and they, they remastered it. So you can tell that it's it's more polished, but like, a remaster, I, I forgive anyone for telling that we suck eggs, it's not like they've went in and remixed the album. The stems are still exactly where they were, but it's had a, a remaster, so overall the sound is is more maybe more polished, but mm-hmm. nothing changes. Her her voice is still exactly where yeah. it was. That harmony's still there. That bum note that sits on the harmonica that gets me every single time. You, is, you, you get It's that, never moved, yeah, right? So it's. Um, I, I just love that. That's the way it was recorded, and it stayed that way. And, and she she speaks about. Um, she would go in and take a full day and record a song and get the mix down and listen to it in the car on the way home that night, mm-hmm. and that just that that brings back so many memories mm-hmm. for me. I like being in recording till like four o'clock in the morning and everybody all sitting in the van and listening to this rough as toast mix of a tune that you've that you've just done and, and, and trying to en- envisage what it was going to sound like at the end of the day. But that's what
0: you're meant to listen to. It. You're meant to listen to it on crappy speakers. Yep. When you're actually listening to a mix, that's. I mean, I can't remember who told me that, and you did somebody told me that and you read books and that, and they go no you take it out and play it in a car mm-hmm. and to see how it actually sounds in a car because nobody listens to music through mm-hmm. a fifteen pound stereo system yep. which, which is sitting in which mm-hmm. is sitting in the studio were nirvana a big influence
1: um, on, on these
0: or was they a bit too
1: no i think from memory i had a pal that stayed around the corner that was just obsessed with kurt Cobain, and i don't know whether that was a put off um because I, Kurt Cobain was like this sort of taboo figure when I was coming through school. That he smoked weed and he was he was a a, a screwball basically, and like anything there was like censored. Like obviously you got like the, the really sort of infamous Top of the Pops episode where uh-huh. they're on the, they're on British television, uh, like gobbling the mic and they've all like jumping around the place like live vocals, but uh, but pre recorded music and stuff like that. So Scott listened to. Uh, Nirvana, and I don't really think I ever got into that, but it wasn't until like they were this powerhouse of a band that yeah. had just like taken over the world effectively, but were saw as this like it was one dimension, and then like Unplugged the appears. Un-
0: the Unplugged album obviously it comes out, I think it's seven months after he, he had committed suicide, an Unplugged album, mm-hmm. club, but it was filmed the November before. Yep, and what year was that? Um, it was released, it was recorded in November 1993, and it was released on the 1st of November 1994. Yeah. So um, there, there's a couple of really interesting facts about this. MTV hated it because they didn't the day of the hits. Uh-huh. I mean, there's six covers in the 14 songs, yeah. there's three Meat Puppet songs, a David Bowie songs, yes. and the Vaseline song. Uh-huh. And MTV were utterly aghast yeah. that the they are going to get smells like teen spirit like uh-huh. they're the only band ever to record they're unplugged in one take mm-hmm. usually the band's done a take then stopped and came back on they recorded it basically as a as, yeah. a, li- as a live gig um what they actually reckon was that kurt cobain wasn't a hundred percent sure about doing it and mm-hmm. they didn't want to make an arse of himself basically. And that's why they'd done the cover versions. Right. Because they they didn't want he was that nervous doing it. See. And that, that. and they'd only band as well that were allowed to use electric guitars as well. And that was at Cobain's insistence as
1: uh-huh. well. Well I think for me, the man who sold the world. Brilliant. Kev there's very few songs which A cover version kind of clips the original, and for me, that's that makes the list. Um, And without that electric guitar lick at the beginning of the song, it totally changes the the dynamic of it. And when I listen back to that album now, the band are so well rehearsed, Mm -hmm. like it's live. It was
0: only two days rehearsals. Yeah,
1: well, the thing is about musicians, like when they are as close as that band are perceived to be. It just comes naturally. You know what the guy beside you is going to do be- without mm-hmm. even looking at him. So they must have just known two days' worth of rehearsals straight in there, but confident of of being able to go in there and, and produce that 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 recording. It's just... It, I think Unplugged was a bigger influence on what we did than what any of their, their, uh, their, their other the, recordings were.
0: Uh, he says that to me over text, and I got wondered about that. It became fashionable after Nirvana done that to do the unplugged, where he include a cover. Yeah, uh, I think it happened on Radio One daytime. Radio One. I, I remember Travis doing. Well, you done a Britney Spears cover as we well. We did. I. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about that soon. <laughs> um, so he, they, they would do a they would do a session. They would always do a, a cover. They mm-hmm. would always do a cover, and I think that all stems for this. You weren't you, you. You go into a band with maybe like 13 14 years after this Mm -hmm. were you supposed to do acoustic stuff based on what Nirvana had done before or was it an industry thing that metal bands show your other side let's let's show that you're nice laddies no I
1: think I think where it comes from is these songs are never written by a group of people sitting in the studio that you just jam out a song in the studio. For us studio time's expensive Kevin, bands don't have money so mm-hmm. if it's costing you 30 quid a time to spend 3 hours in our rehearsal rooms in Glasgow, you don't have that, it, it's a luxury it's, it's it's you don't have that sort of disposable income so where these songs are written is in the bedroom
0: mm-hmm.
1: we, we me and, and the other guitarist and we sit down and we, we, we write a song and it's written on an acoustic guitar and then the band comes together and that idea is transcribed into a, a full band version of a song. So somewhere deep, deep in in each of these big metal tunes, mm-hmm. there's somebody there that's that's written this on on an acoustic guitar. Um, so for us, when we um, was it was the promo for the second album, um, we we done a release on a company called Pledge Music, and um, it was like one of the sort of like very like early stages crowdfunding, yes. um, where people would pledge to buy the album in advance, and you would give them. Perks in return for for putting their money out but before the money, they were aye. they were going to get anything, and um, so they would get things like there was like like video messages or aye. get to come and spend the day with the band and come into the rehearsal rooms and we done three acoustic shows Glasgow Manchester and London and they were heavily influenced by Nirvana's Unplugged with the candles all lit in the stage and stuff like that like it just and the songs were so easily transcribed back to being acoustic versions because that's where they came from at the end of the day. I think um, it, I
0: think it's great when you see something stripped back and, I, and I, when you look at the whole Nirvana unplugged thing at uh, uh, this time, it's came out in 1994. Again, uh, I'm more into Britpop at that time but when you hear this, you go, wow, mm-hmm. that is a band very, very, what I thought at the time, very very comfortable on their skin that they can mm-hmm. do that, but it came from a it came from a place of great anxiety. Yes. that it turned out like that, eh? And Nirvana, obviously early nineties. I was never a massive grunge person mm-hmm. in that, eh? But that Nirvana album is one of my favourite albums of all time, eh? I yep. can't even listen to Nevermind because I think. Never mind's just it's maybe too much in the public conscious mm-hmm. and i always found it quite unusual i mean you've been involved in the writing of songs i'm not talented enough to actually do that <laughs> uh, but I'll, it smells like teen spirit based on the riff uh, more than the feeling yep right why if you just want to be like mud honey would you actually rip off one of the biggest rock songs of all time yeah. and no expect it to actually Make make that breakthrough crossover. Mm -hmm. That's always puzzled me. Yeah, I'd
1: never thought about it like that before either. Um, But aye, it's and for them to uh, to avoid playing that on the album, I think it's genius. I think it's genius as well. It's incredible. And and all they did, all they wanted to do, was upset the apple Mm cart. The same as the the top of the pops appearance. They just wanted people to talk about them, but not for the reasons that you would expect. You know. Um, So as much as Nirvana were maybe not what Nirvana did in. In terms of recorded albums and how they were perceived in the media i think i maybe missed the boat with that but you can't deny that that ability and, and that desire that songwriting was there uh, yeah, from the start
0: the ability to surprise you mentioned limp biscuit mm-hmm. and you went on tour with limp biscuit yep did you ever get fred durst on a celtic top
1: uh, no um he wears a boston celtics basketball jersey um quite often but when we done it wasn't actually on tour, but Papa Roach came back to Glasgow and Jacobi had sent me a message to say that they were going to be coming here. Um, they played play in the Baralands and I went into the New Balance outlet and East Bride on the way into town and picked up, the, it was the yellow away kit, uh, Magnus, I think, sponsor, and then um, came in and we, we went into town, went to the meat bar, we had lunch and then went to the Baris after and I was like, look, mate, I've got you a present. Don't wear this. Just there's, there's a huge divide. If you wear this tonight, half the room's going to cheer you and half, half the room's, room's going to boo you. In. And he's just like, basically like, I'll decide. <laughs> so they went off for the last song and then came back on for the encore and exactly what I said happened was going to happen. Like just, that met with this wall of boos and cheers and um, they went back off again and came back on and he was wearing a Scotland jersey this time. So I think he was just sort of trying to play the peacemaker at that stage. But there is a picture of me, Jacoby. Jerry, he's wearing the Celtic strip and everyone's all standing in the, the, the Barrowlands dressing room. You still
0: keep in touch with these guys? Yeah, right? um,
1: th- th- these people are friends for life, you know. Really? Um, it's it's incredible. Um, you just get a text out of the blue one day or I'll post a, a picture of my dog on Instagram mm-hmm. and I get a, a message back saying, like, this is class. And the, the thing is, like, these guys are, they're just human beings. I, know, uh, they, I they, know, they, but... Kevin, And we see them, we, like, I did, I did I had their posters up my wall, um, Papa Roach Infest, Limp Biscuit, significant other, and, but they're just, they'll sit and talk about passionately about things other than music, so Jerry Horton in Papa Roach is mad on cars, and mm-hmm. that's my other vice's motors. So we, he's got an Instagram page called Drive Culture, and um, he'll just message me through the Drive Culture page, send me pictures of cars, and we'll, we'll blather away, that's because the... I don't think they get it, like, anywhere else. I don't know that they'll go on tour and meet somebody else that, that, that their, their interests align like that. So whenever they come back, like, Jacoby and I will sit down, we talk about faith, we talk about family, um, we talk about football, like anything else um, that's not music because these guys are immersed in it 24-7 and they just need somebody to sit down and, and take them away if I find everything that, I mean, else.
0: I find that, I mean, if you ever meet anybody myself the first thing you want to ask them about is music yes and now you've just told me if you ever meet your heroes then you speak to them about music no <laughs> I, <laughs> talk, talk to them about something else i
1: well i, I mean not like you, you don't get there by having anything other than a mutual respect for these individuals mm. and um the the desire to want to talk to them about about music when when we went on tour with limp biscuit the first show was in brixton academy so you're playing to five thousand people that night and you turn up and you've got this guy that you've held in a pedestal since you were that size and um, all of a sudden you're there, a peer, you're sharing a stage with them and what I brought that night was, it must have been like 1998, 1999 and a company released like a, it was basically like a sort of fake Lego set of Limp Biscuit stage and it had a backdrop and like wee figurines of each of the band. And uh, I had this shoebox and and a backpack and walked into the venue and Fred Durst walked past me. I was coming up to our dressing room and he was coming down the stairs and I was like, don't say anything to him now. He's obviously going to sound check. Don't be a wee guy. And um, he turned around and he was like, are you one of the guys from Yashin? I was just like, aye, mate. Um, He's like, "Um, thanks so much for coming out on tour. Um, Our agent said we should check it out and and we love what you guys do. So at that stage, we were only doing a one-off show and he says, after tonight... We're going to play uh, Hamburg, Amsterdam. There was another four or five shows and uh, we'd, we'd love you to to join us on those That's dates if you, if you can make it. And I was just like, this, I can't get my head around this. Like this guy's talking to me, like he's listened to my band. And he wants us to come and do the rest of the tour. So we managed to shuffle things about and got to go and do a big open air show in Hamburg with Limp Biscuit. We got to go play Amsterdam Heineken Music Hall with them. I got to go up on stage and do a song with Limp Biscuit. But these people want to talk about things other than tunes. Fred Durst plays golf. Like, plays golf. Which game and Call of Duty and whatever else. So
0: What, what did you think of them coming back last year like like dressed like a, a dirty, d- Aye. dirty Aye. grandpa? Well, the
1: thing is Limp Biscuit have not had an album since the one that they toured when we went out it was Golden Cobra 2012. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. Not released an album since then. So last year when they brought out um Limp Biscuit Sucks, it's like this total like it's still Limp Biscuit. It's got the identity, <laughs> but he turns up on stage dressed like your, your grandfather <laughs> and everybody just loves it. Like he's wearing a wig and he's got a fake moustache on and everything else and he's just totally reinvented himself. If you go on his Instagram, like he just posts pictures of like old American, like station wagons with a big wood panel up the side and stuff <laughs> like that. He's just got this identity. Um But you still get a message every now and again. That's I'll brilliant. message him and say happy birthday or hope everyone's doing well. Um Wes Borland, who's the guitarist in Biscuit, um, had a side project called Blacklight Burns. They played The Cat House. And we went down and we sat about after it and had a couple of drinks and everything else. But I like these people connect with you on a on a level that's outside of just music. So like when they do come back around, it's like well, I've not seen any of these guys in a long time. Like no one's been back to the UK since the pandemic and everything else. But guaranteed the next time Papa Roach come to Glasgow, Jacoby and I will be sitting in a restaurant somewhere having a bit of something to eat he yeah. doesn't drink so maybe <laughs> be heavy but...
0: get him down here or get him to Celtic park, yeah Kevin.
1: absolutely I no bother at all
0: Kevin it's been absolutely brilliant actually speaking to you this has been a wee while in the making yeah definitely. it's been absolutely fantastic thank you for coming on and you will have absolutely pleased all the metalheads <laughs> that, that watch a Celtic state of mind they all so... switched <laughs> off about 25 minutes
1: ago mate <laughs> thanks Kevin so, cheers, cheers. cheers.
0: Podcast Network.